Hello and welcome to another of our MEM podcasts. My name is Dr Rachel Savile and we've got Dr Jessica Williams with us today who's one of the consultant gastroenterologists at Derby. Hi. Hi. So today I think we're going to talk about the main differences between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Yep, so I thought we'd talk about the presentation initially. So both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis present commonly with diarrhoea, but more likely to see bloody diarrhoea in ulcerative colitis. You get pain much more commonly in Crohn's disease, although people with UC do get some left-sided abdominal pain before defecation. Mm -hmm. It's more of a constant feature in patients with Crohn's. Weight loss can occur in both diseases as a presentation and is sometimes the only presentation in Crohn's, but weight loss again is much more common in Crohn's disease. We will rarely see people with abdominal masses in ulcerative colitis, but clearly in Crohn's disease, again, it can be the primary presenting complaint, for example, a psoas abscess or a collection around the cecum Mm -hmm. from ileocecal disease. And obviously fistulas and abscess formations you only see in Crohn's disease. Okay, yeah, so to summarise, the main problems we get in Crohn's are the abdominal pain, weight loss, abdominal masses and fistulas or abscesses, whereas in the ulcerative colitis side, you might like to get the bloody diarrhoea and the pain prior to defecation. Absolutely, and it's usually obvious from the history. Mm-hmm. There's a difference in which areas of the gastrointestinal tract that are affected as well, isn't there? Yeah, so Crohn's disease can obviously affect anywhere in the GI tract from mouth to anus, but the most common sites are ileocolonic disease or terminal ileal disease. We occasionally see disease elsewhere, particularly perianal disease with fistulas, but rarely will we see upper GI Crohn's. Ulcerative colitis, on the other hand, only ever affects your colon. So you'll very occasionally see what we describe as backwash ileitis, so some very mild inflammation in the last portion of the terminal ileum, but that's really quite unusual and UC will only affect the colon. It can affect any bit of your colon from isolated rectal disease to left-sided disease or pancolitis, so the whole colon. Sometimes you see that the rectum is spared, even if the rest of the bowel's inflamed. I think traditionally the textbooks talk about it must involve the rectum, but that's not actually true in practice. Okay. This week's question of the week that we put out um, to our Instagram was about the histology in Crohn's disease. Yeah, so the big difference is that in ulcerative colitis, you will only see mucosal inflammation. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, the submucosa will be involved as a sort of reactive process, but it's not directly involved. Whereas in Crohn's disease, you can get inflammation through all the layers of the bowel. So it's what we call transmural inflammation. And what we specifically look for when we're thinking about Crohn's disease is the presence of granulomas in the biopsies that we might take. Mm -hmm. So you can see granulomas in other causes of colonic inflammation, but really it's most likely to be Crohn's disease. And you'll get crypt abscesses and goblet cell depletion in ulcerative colitis that you see less frequently in Crohn's. But granulomas are the key to it Mm -hmm. as a differentiating factor. Brilliant. Thank you. And then when we um, have a patient that we think is presenting with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, what would be your initial investigations or your initial workup? So 
I would reiterate that the answer is often in the history and so a really careful history about their symptoms is very important but beyond that Stool cultures are important for everyone, even if you don't think it's infective, because very occasionally you'll pick things up and it's not the sort of thing you want to miss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fecal calprotectin is really useful in the younger population. So if people are under 45 and presenting with bloody diarrhoea or diarrhoea, then it can be a really helpful test. I think the caveat to that would be that if it's within six weeks of an infection, that faecal calprotectin will still be positive, still be elevated. Mm-hmm. So an elevated faecal calprotectin is not diagnostic of IBD, but a negative faecal calprotectin is really helpful as an exclusion. So ordinary full blood count, really looking for anemia, which can be a presenting feature in either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease checking for hematinics because low folate, low B12 and low ferritin obviously can occur in either, but more commonly in Crohn's than UC because of the role of the terminal ileum in absorbing those things. CRP is useful, but it doesn't rise in everyone with active inflammatory bowel disease. There are some patients who just don't mount that CRP response. And the other thing that can be very sensitive in terms of assessing activity of patients with known IBD is the platelet count which is often very high in active phases of the disease. The majority of people that present with bloody diarrhoea or diarrhoea and weight loss or diarrhoea and abdominal mass will need a full colonoscopy with intubation of the terminal ileum to obtain biopsies and that's probably the key to diagnosis in most of these patients. It's important not to just colonoscope everyone who turns up with diarrhoea, however. Brilliant, thank you. Um, And you mentioned in there about the um, endoscopy for these patients. What would be your kind of endoscopic appearances that you would see in each of the two diseases? So ulcerative colitis, the inflammation's confluent, so it's present from where you see it onwards. And as I said earlier, that may or may not involve the rectum. You get often contact bleeding and very friable mucosa. It tends to look generally red and angry with lots of little ulcers. Crohn's disease is much more patchy and the typical skip lesions that they talk about with Crohn's disease. So it's not usually continuous. The very deep ulcers that you get in Crohn's disease look entirely different to the general erythema that you get in ulcerative colitis. And it's those deep ulcers with some edema of the mucosa in between that creates that cobblestone appearance Mm -hmm. that they used to talk about seeing on barium enemas. But we don't really do barium enemas anymore. So what has taken the place of barium enemas in modern medicine? So in ulcerative colitis, we rarely image anything as an outpatient. So a plain abdominal x-ray can be useful if you think someone with distal colitis has got proximal constipation, but we certainly don't tend to use cross-sectional imaging for those patients. In ulcerative colitis, an abdominal film is also useful if they're acutely unwell in terms of looking for a toxic megacolon, Mm. and that would be a clear indication for sometimes daily x-rays in inpatients, Mm -hmm. uh, which sometimes upsets the radiologists, but it's appropriate. In Crohn's disease, we use a lot more cross-sectional imaging and increasingly it's based on MRI rather than um, CT scanning. So MRIs of the small bowel are very useful in terms of mapping disease. 
MRI is also useful for looking for fistulas or collections in perianal disease. So the last couple of things that we wanted to talk about were the extra intestinal manifestations of IBD and the colorectal cancer risk. So there's often lots of questions in exams about extra intestinal manifestations of IBD um, and they're the sort of spot diagnoses that they like to put in front of you sometimes as well. I tend to think of the extra intestinal manifestations in essentially four groups. So there's the skin conditions, Mm -hmm. bone and joint problems, eye problems and PSC. So in terms of skin problems, then erythema nodosum is probably the thing we see the most often. It's one of those conditions that you'll know it if you see it. So it causes red, tender, exquisitely painful lumps on the extensor surfaces, usually on the shins, but sometimes on the arms as well. And they really do hurt. And if people give you a history of it, it's really fairly obvious. We sometimes see pyoderma gangrenosum. This is a horrible, disfiguring, ulcerating disease with deep ulcers, with raised, rolled, violaceous edges. Again, they're fairly characteristic. You can get them anywhere on the body, but they're more common um, around the buttocks and on the abdomen. And sometimes in people who've had previous surgery for Crohn's disease, you'll see them in the peristomal region. Mm-hmm. In terms of bone and joint problems, these are usually seronegative polyarthritides. There's an association with ankylosing spondylitis, although it's not truly an extra-intestinal manifestation of IBD. You see Ancrone's patients both have an increased risk of osteoporosis as well, which is due to the chronic inflammation that you see and the bone resorption states. In terms of eye signs, both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's are associated with acute red eyes. So they're caused either by uveitis, scleritis or episcleritis. If I see patients with these, I send them to see an ophthalmologist. But it often runs concurrently with their disease activity. Mm. So if their inflammatory bowel disease is bad, their eyes are red. Okay. And primary sclerosing cholangitis is more common in ulcerative colitis than in Crohn's disease, much more common in men and common in younger people. The reason that we've linked the extraintestinal manifestations with the colorectal cancer risk is because the, there's a very significant colorectal cancer risk in people with coexistent PSC and inflammatory bowel disease. So both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease have an increased risk of colorectal cancer. People with isolated rectal inflammation, so either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's proctitis, don't have an increased risk. So we don't survey those people. Otherwise, the risk increases with disease duration, and it's more marked in people who've got more of their colon involved with their IBD. So we think it's because chronic inflammatory changes within the colonic mucosa allow dysplastic cells to develop. So we look at the colon at 10 years post-diagnosis. That's when we would undertake a first endoscopy and we use dye spray. So that means we put some blue dye onto the lining of the bowel so that we can see any abnormal lesions. And the purpose of doing that is not to look for cancer, but to look for what we call darm lesions. So that's dysplasia-associated lymphoid mucosa. And those are the precancerous changes. 
if we see those changes, we should be taking the colon out in those patients because their cancer risk is very high. Mm -hmm. So as I say, we do it 10 years after the onset of symptoms, which is not always the same as 10 years after diagnosis. Lots of IBD patients will have had some symptoms for some years before they get their diagnosis. And we would continue that lifelong until you make an agreement perhaps with your patient that they don't want to have that done anymore, which is entirely reasonable. Surveillance intervals are determined by what you find. If there's not a lot of inflammation or no inflammation, they may not have another procedure for five years. If you've got very significant inflammation, you can require annual colonoscopies. The other group that require annual colonoscopy, regardless of the findings, are patients with PSC because their colorectal cancer risk is high and they need annual colonoscopy from the point that the two conditions are diagnosed together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so their risk is higher than... Uh, absolutely, than yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your talk through of IBD and Crohn's. Thank you.